Isaiah chapter 8. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day. We thank you for the beautiful weather. Lord, we thank you for this Christmas season and a time to worship you and to remember your son coming into our world as the word became flesh. Lord, I want to pray for Liz Yergler and the surgery that she's having on Thursday and just pray for that surgery, pray for the, for the procedure to go well, um, pray for healing, pray for recovery, pray for, um, Lord, for this cancer to go into remission and to be defeated. Lord, I want to pray for Ben Ravens and the surgery that he has coming up in a couple weeks and it's just, it's incredible how extensive that sur- surgery is and the recovery. And Lord, just want to pray for him and his family. I want to pray for these couple weeks of preparation uh, for that. Pray that they can have a wonderful holiday. And Lord, pray for your blessing on him. I want to continue to pray for the Merkel family, Lord, as they continue to, to mourn Ron. And Lord, I just I, I pray for them as well. It's tough to lose people during the holiday season, Lord. But I, I thank you for the hope that we have of your gospel and the promise of salvation for all who love you and love your son and believe in the eternal life that he gives. Lord, I pray for the time in your word this morning, and as always, that it be edifying, that it point us to you, that it encourage us to love you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Continuing in the book of Isaiah, in this series that we've been in, this Christmas season, uh, one thing I'd like to mention at the beginning, actually before I begin the beginning, hope to see everyone at the Christmas uh, pageant that the kids were doing this evening. Carrie got to see that last week when she was down in the nursery and, and had really good things to say, and I know I'm really excited for it. So, uh, yeah, I hope we have a ton of people, and it, I think it's going to be really good. I um, also wanted to mention, as I've been in the book of Isaiah, uh, there's an Old Testament scholar named John Oswalt, O-S-W-A-L-T, and he's written two different books on Isaiah, both of which have been very helpful. So if you're ever looking to study Isaiah in depth, uh, I think that's a great place to start. Great scholar, great heart for, for this book, and I know I've been enriched by it. Uh, we have been going through passages in Isaiah this Christmas season and looking at the overall context of a verse that comes from Isaiah, but which is quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. Isaiah seven fourteen. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. I hope this has been helpful, but every week I've spent a couple moments recapping where we've been in this story, and I do it because I know that there's a lot going on. It can be easy to get lost in the story, and because I know sometimes a person might miss a Sunday, and I don't want anyone to be totally uh, confused. So uh, once again, just to give a little bit of background about where we are in the book of Isaiah, we're in the 8th century before Christ. God's chosen people and promised land are in a small kingdom called Judah. And there's a regional superpower who poses a threat to Judah called Assyria. Judah attempts to pay off Assyria to be left alone. The king of Judah, a man named Ahaz, uses the gold from the temple to pay Assyria. A wicked and pagan nation. There are two other kingdoms, Israel and Syria who had attempted to force Judah into an anti-Assyrian alliance. Judah refused, and so Israel and Syria went to war with Judah. Again, the nations who surround Judah are sinful and wicked, but 
Judah is as well, and God ultimately is going to bring divine judgment on all of these nations. It's a difficult time. And it's at this time that the Lord gives the famous Emmanuel sign to Ahaz, king of Judah. I've made the point that I believe that the sign of Emmanuel has a double fulfillment. I believe that ultimately it points to Christ. But I also believe that the text of Isaiah demands that it means something in the time when the prophecy was originally given in the 8th century B.C. The Isaiah passage talks of this Emmanuel figure being born, and it talks about judgment on Israel and Syria. And those nations had already fallen long before the time of Christ. So it makes more sense that it's referring to events in the day of Ahaz. We talked about this last week. I believe the initial fulfillment of the Emmanuel prophecy was Isaiah's son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. And the reason why I believe that he's Emmanuel are the close parallels uh, for his introduction and that of the Emmanuel sign. For Meher Shalal Hashbaz and Emmanuel, it uses similar language in both chapters in Isaiah about the circumstances of his birth, the process by which he was named, and it talks about events in his early life which mirror those which were said to happen early in the life of Emmanuel. And furthermore, there's a verse in our passage this morning which points to Isaiah's son as being part of the fulfillment of that sign. Isaiah chapter 8, verse 18, Isaiah says, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs in importance in Israel for the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. So Isaiah sees this son as a sign. He was the first Emmanuel. Again, the name Emmanuel means God with us. But here's something that's interesting is that there's nobody in the Bible whose first name is actually Emmanuel. That's even true when we consider the connection of that name to Christ. It says that Jesus will be called Emmanuel, but Jesus is named Jesus. And for that reason, I take Emmanuel to really be more of a title than a first name. The first Emmanuel in Isaiah's day was a sign of God's presence with his people in spite of their sin. The second Emmanuel, Jesus, is God literally with us. While the Emmanuel prophecy had an initial fulfillment in the day of Ahaz, the section concludes this morning with another prophecy and another popular Christmas time passage, which can only refer to Jesus. And with that, we continue in our series on Emmanuel, part four, a sign surpassed. And we're going to look at our passage in three sections this morning. The first point we're going to look at is our relationship to God. Beginning of our passage, the prophet Isaiah speaking, chapter 8, verse 11. 11 and 12, he says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people call, calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. 
The text says, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. And the point that that's making is that the people of God should not fear what the rest of the world fears. Verse 13, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. So Isaiah is calling upon the people to have a fear of the Lord instead of what the rest of the world fears. We all know this verse from the book of Proverbs. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. I think when we think of a fear of the Lord, we often associate that with having a reverence for God. And certainly we need that. But as with many aspects of theology and our understanding of God and our relationship to the Lord, these issues are often multifaceted. And I think part of the idea that the beginning of this section is getting at is that if we truly fear the Lord, we have nothing else to fear. President Franklin Roosevelt famously said, you have nothing to fear but fear itself. That's incorrect. You have nothing to fear but God himself. Now, there are all sorts of things that we're tempted to fear. For Judah, they feared the nations around them, namely Assyria. That's why they cut a deal with Assyria. Even though the Assyrians were a barbaric and pagan and wicked nation. The issue was that they feared Assyria more than they feared the Lord. But again, there are all sorts of things that we're tempted to fear more than we fear God. In America, we live in a nation where we're so blessed and have so much that it's tempting to, to fear situations where we don't have control. They can be situations with our health or the health of someone we love. They can be situations with our finances. They can be situations with relationships we have. We can fear our favorite political candidate losing or the wrong one winning. We can fear external threats to our peace and security, other nations who might be hostile to us. We can fear change. And if those aren't enough, if you watch the news, it seems like we often invent fears. As we come to the end of a decade, I think about 20 years ago, the big fear then was Y2K. It was just going to be total chaos at exactly midnight on January 1st, 2000. Came and went, nothing happened. A few years after that, it was the bird flu. It was going to be the bubonic plague, basically, bird flu. Then about 10 years ago, it was swine flu. In 2011, a man named Harold Camping had predicted the end of the world. It wasn't the first time he made such a prediction. It wasn't the first time he was wrong. In 2012, perhaps you remember that the Mayan calendar ended, and it was supposed to be the apocalypse, the end of the world. At the time, I was saying, if they were so smart, how come they don't exist as a society anymore? Five years ago, a couple people in America contracted Ebola. Once again, this is going to be the plague. Eleven people caught it. It's always something, always something we have to fear. We put far too much stock into the world that's around us. 
No matter how good things are, no matter how good things are with our health or our finances or our family, our accomplishments, no matter who controls Congress or lives in the White House, none of those are our ultimate hope for eternal life and salvation. And no matter how bad things can be in those areas, you're not doomed if they don't work out for the best, if you know the Lord. If you don't have God, no matter how good the things in other areas of your life are, you don't have hope. We have nothing to fear but God himself. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both the soul and body in hell. Back in our passage in the book of Isaiah, verses 14 and 15. And he will become a sanctuary, he's talking about the Lord, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. The Lord can be a sanctuary or a stumbling block. He can be a source of comfort or a source of angst. He can be the God who gives life or the one who we fear is keeping us from the life that we really want to live. What's your attitude towards God? Where is your sanctuary? Yes, it's easy to say that that's God. But what is your real source of hope and comfort? Is it the Lord? Or in your heart of hearts, is it really in a particular set of circumstances? If the Lord is truly your greatest fear, nothing else we face can ultimately touch us. Because again, we often fear what's around us more than we fear God. Judah did. And I never like to judge people and nations too harshly in the Bible. Because I think we oftentimes have a lot more in common with them than we like to admit to ourselves. The prophet Isaiah continues to speak. It's somewhat of a reflection of the situation in which Judah finds herself. Before I read this next verse, a quote comes to mind that I've heard before. It's darkest just before the dawn. I know it's in the, uh, one of the Batman movies. It's actually originally from a, like a 17th century theologian, but... In many ways, I think the end of chapter 8 is the darkness before the dawn. It's the gloom before the hope. And Isaiah says in verses 16 and 17, Bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. And what Isaiah is saying is that though the Lord is temporarily symbolically hiding himself from his people due to their sin, rebellion, and distancing themselves from the Lord, that Isaiah will continue to trust in God. That's an important idea. Trusting God throughout the full sweep of history. It's always very tempting just to focus on our time, on our lives. But part of the real life of faith is trusting that God is working his plans and sovereign will throughout all of history. 
that sometimes the people of God can go through really difficult seasons and live in really difficult times in history. I think that there's always a nagging temptation in America to believe in the prosperity gospel. That really what God wants is for us to be happy and blessed and to do well and for good things to happen in our lives. I think part of that is because we have so much as a nation. And so we like to have this sense of optimism that things will just always work out for our good and be good. Now, spiritually and eternally, that's true for the person who is in Christ. But in our day-to-day life, there's no guarantee. But I think it's because we act and oftentimes talk and oftentimes think that there's such a guarantee that we get disappointed when God doesn't come through the way we think he should. If something doesn't work out, it's not always because God just had something better for you. Sometimes something doesn't work out, and then you find out you have a terminal illness. There are difficulties and hardships that we face in life. We are fragile and finite. But what is the hope that gets us through? Because what if God never does change a circumstance that's really difficult? What if he never does give you the thing that you really want? What if he never removes the thorn from the flesh? For Isaiah, he was a firsthand witness to the wickedness of the kings, to the decline of the monarchy. Church tradition records that Isaiah was later executed by being sawn in half. And yet he says in this passage, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. The hope of the Christian life is ultimately in the future where God will make all things right. Take away all pain, sickness, and death. But there's no guarantee that everything in your own day-to-day 2019 life will just be good. But in the meantime, in spite of difficulties, the frustrations, the challenges we face, we still have two things. We have God... And we have his promises. But is God enough when the going gets tough? Again, what if the thing that most plagues you never gets any better? Will you still trust in God regardless? Or you eventually get to a point where you say, this just isn't working for me. I need to put my hope someplace else. Because that's what Judah chose to do. For Isaiah... One of the things that gave him hope was the sign that God had given. Verse 18. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells in Mount Zion. Again, he's referring to his sons. But we have our own signs to look at to trust in the Lord. Most notably, Jesus, the promised Emmanuel who came 700 years later. And it's because he lived and died and rose again that we can trust the Lord and all that he says and all that is his gospel. Because we see God's continued faithfulness throughout history and throughout the world. Second point, the temptation to turn from God. 
And chapter 8 concludes with Isaiah pointing to the ways the world tries to search for truth and life apart from the Lord. Verse 19. And when he says, and, I'm sorry, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Verse 19, he gets at the idea that it could be tempting to turn to the occult, to pagan practices. Ironically, this can happen in our day, too. People take up an interest in the New Age, in the mystical, in Eastern religions. Isaiah rhetorically asks, should not a people inquire of their God? The answer is, of course they should. That's where people should go, where people should turn. But we so often don't. Isaiah asks another rhetorical question. Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Obviously, the answer to that question is no. But when a person turns away from God, people are susceptible to all sorts of beliefs. Verse 20, Isaiah talks of the hopelessness of turning from God. That's what he means when he says... If they, will, if they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. That there is hopelessness apart from the Lord. And that idea carries into verse 21. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their kings and their God and turn their faces upward. Things won't go the way the people want, and so they'll turn their back on God. Again, this is not some crazy, impossible scenario. God isn't doing what they want him to do. He's not doing things the way they want him to do them. And so they turn away. When the going gets tough, the tough get going. And there is dissatisfaction with God. Chapter 8 concludes, verse 22. And they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they'll be thrust into the darkness. The darkness before the dawn. There is no redeeming quality in Judah. They deserve everything they've gotten. They've sinned. They've relied on themselves. They've turned to other sources of hope. And they turned away from the Lord, totally spiritually empty and bankrupt. Again, the question is never why God judges with such severity, but why God ever forgives at all. And that brings us to our third point, the grace of God. Chapter 9, the tone begins to change. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Every human attempt at finding life has failed, and yet God is showing grace. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Isaiah refers to two parts of the kingdom who were conquered. He says, In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. When the Assyrians went to war with Judah, Zebulun and Naphtali were two of the first areas to fall. It's recorded in 2 Kings 15, 29. 
So they had been conquered. But Isaiah is prophesying and saying that there will be no gloom and anguish because these territories who were the first to be conquered will ultimately be places from which much of the ministry of Jesus takes place. Gospel of Matthew, beginning of Jesus' ministry in that gospel. Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. Leaving Nazareth, he, referring to Jesus, went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Back to our passage in Isaiah chapter 9. The prophet is talking of the tumultuous time in the land and the grace of God out of the darkness. And he continues talking of a new time of blessing, totally undeserved. 9 verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has the light shone. We've talked about this before, but light is a symbol for the righteousness and presence of God. God is bringing light into a darkened land. Chapter 8 ends by talking of the darkness in the land, the thick darkness in the land. And here, he's talking about the great light coming into the world. And we see that in Jesus, who is the light of the world. In former sections that we've studied over the past few weeks, we saw pictures of a war-torn land, of depopulation, of meager harvests, and losing what they have. 9 verse 3 talks of a time of restoration. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Again, with all of the sin and war in the previous chapters, this section ends on a hopeful note. God's goodness and blessing freely given to the people and ultimately given to the world. Verse 4 makes reference to the Assyrian oppression and the hardship Judah faced under them. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. He talks about Midian, he's referring to a past military victory Israel enjoyed in the book of Judges. So it's pointing back to history to show God's faithfulness, to remind Judah of God's future faithfulness. All of the hardship that Judah has faced will be broken. Verse 5 makes one final reference to the defeat for Judah. For every boot of tramping warrior and battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood, will be burned as fuel for the fire. I realize I've been very brief over these few verses. There's obviously much more that could be said, but the main takeaway is that times would be changing. God was going to bring a new era. And the reason as to why is not because Judah suddenly had gotten it together or become righteous, but God intervenes for his people because of his own goodness. And he does it in the most improbable way. We see in verse 6, he does it through a baby. A well-known verse at Christmas time, Isaiah 9, 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. As a child was promised in the initial sign of Emmanuel. Here again, we see the promise of a child. Again, God picks an area of weakness, the most vulnerable in our world, to display his strength. 
It will be through this child that God does his mightiest work. Some have speculated that the child in this chapter is referring to Ahaz's son, the future king Hezekiah. But that won't work at all, given the titles that are used to refer to this baby. No nearly human person is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. It is God alone who fits this description because it is God who came into the world. Interestingly enough, in this passage, he is not referred to as a king. The passage talks of a kingdom. It talks of the government being upon his shoulders. So he is a ruler, but he's not here called a king. It's almost like the title of king had been so tarnished in Judah that they did not want to refer to him as a coming king. But look at the titles that are used. Wonderful counselor. We, haven't ex- we have not explored this theme very much, but there's a, a minor theme in the book of Isaiah that talks about poor counsel from those who do not know the Lord and who do not walk in wisdom in receiving bad counsel. But the Lord is sending the wonderful counselor, the one who perfectly exhibits the divine truth and wisdom, one who doesn't merely have opinions about the truth, but who himself is the truth. One who doesn't merely speak God's word, but who himself is the word. The prophesied figure is called the mighty God. We see the power that Christ displays throughout his ministry. We see him feeding multitudes, healing the sick, causing the lame to walk, the blind to see, the deaf to hear. We see him showing dominion over nature, calming storms and walking on water. We see him raising the dead. And we see his greatest act of might in the Gospels, and which is foretold elsewhere in the book of Isaiah, that Jesus is mighty enough to bear the weight of human sin and to forgive sinners. Isaiah calls this figure the everlasting father. Now, it was not unheard of for kings in the ancient world to refer to themselves as a father of their people. But an everlasting father, an eternal father, who but God could fit that description? Because it is Jesus who is everlasting. It is Jesus who said, before Abraham was, I am. It is Jesus of whom John wrote, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. It is Jesus who is called the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Lastly, he is called the Prince of Peace. While most who come to rule and to reign do so through hostility and war, conquering kings, Jesus came to bring bring peace. He brings peace into the lives of those who love love him and believe in him. And he brings peace and end to hostility between his followers and God. Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But Isaiah doesn't stop there in our passage. He talks of what this counselor, God, Father, Prince will do. Verse 7, Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness for this time forth and forevermore. 
The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This, again, further solidifies that this is not merely referring to an earthly king. That he will have a reign which will never end. It will be he who establishes this throne. While most of the kings of Judah were wicked and sinful, the coming Emmanuel figure will uphold the throne with justice and righteousness and again have a reign that will never end. A similar idea is expressed to Mary in the Gospel of Luke when the angel is telling her about her son. Luke 1, verse 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In a world that was conquered by sin, Jesus brought victory. Through the darkness of a sinful world, Jesus brought light. Through a world that was dead in sin, Jesus brought life. Through a world that was enslaved to sin, Jesus brought freedom. And it's because he is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and Prince of Peace. It is because he is Emmanuel. It's because he is God with us. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do praise you that you are God with us, that you came into our sinful world, into a dark world to bring light, to bring truth, to bring love, to bring peace. Lord, may we never forget that at Christmas time or any time, Lord, may we daily Worship you for your goodness and walk in your ways. In Jesus' name, amen.